Hi, this is Mia. And this is Tina. And you're listening to Yano, the podcast about having a business at the intersection of design and healthcare. Yeah, it's our last episode and it's, you know, it's always a little bittersweet because this podcast is a lot of work, (laughs) but it's also a lot of fun. It's so fun. But it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Uh, For those who have never done a podcast, and we've actually had people talk to us about starting a podcast and we always start with, it's a lot of work. Yeah. (laughs) But it's it's a team effort. You know what would make it not so much work? What? Is if we got a sponsor to pay for oh, the work. Oh, yeah. I know. That was the, um, that's something we should work on for season four. Yeah. So if anybody wants me to sing a ditty for their um, yes. mattress or some lighter fluid, I'm totally willing to do yes. it. Yes. Acapella. Yeah. Maybe we could just talk about what this episode's about and how we got here. Uh, we had some last minute change ups. Yeah. Let me tell you what podcast preparation looks like <laughs> the week before we say what should we talk about in the podcast um just kidding no we that's not what we really do no. um it actually takes a lot of work but we did have a really good plan to talk about women's health because yeah. we are women did i ever tell you that story about when i was at j and j and i had gone to get my annual biannual lady appointment uh-huh and they, I got a bill in the mail saying that it wasn't covered. And I was like, well, you know, was it pap smears. annual? Yeah, pap smears and things like that are covered in the program. And I called and I said, as they should be included right. in the and program. And I said, why aren't, why wasn't it covered? And they said, well, it's not covered because you're a man. <laughs> oh my God, I was not expecting that. And I said, no, I'm a, I'm a woman. <laughs> Why did they even let that go through? Like, who looked at your charts and was like, we, we just can't pay for this? Um, anyway. Jesus. Sorry. I That's crazy. That well, that is very related to our topic today, which is about yeah. inclusion. Yeah. And, and I would so, say that was, what, 10 years ago? Yeah. So we were going to talk about women's health. And then we decided that we should make it a little bit bigger because Broader. it's not just about women. It's about all kinds of, you know, ethnic backgrounds and things like that. And so today we wanted to talk about inclusion in healthcare. Inclusion, yeah. Inclusion being gender, race, ethnicity, uh, disability, or a person's ability. So you have a little story, story of health. Do, 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 do. My story is about a woman who we met earlier this year, and we were doing a a project in lupus, and systemic lupus largely affects African-American women, 
And uh, she was an African-American woman, and we had gone to interview her and talk a little bit about her life, and she did some self-reflection exercises, and she had had a really hard time being diagnosed with lupus, as many people do. And kind of because lupus is very hard to... um, diagnose especially because a lot of times it comes on when you're younger and so when you're younger I think there's some distrust from healthcare providers to really understand fully what um, your symptoms are and so she was talking about her medication and the group that we were with was very interested in adherence to medication right so making sure that she takes the right dose at the right time and she mentioned that when she doesn't feel like her medication is working, she just stops taking it. And when she was pressed on why she did that, the reasons behind it, she said, well, honestly, these medications aren't tested on people like me. And so if I don't feel like it's working or it's not working, I just stop. And that's a real problem for medication companies, of course. But it's also a problem for just trying to get better. And But it's also very valid. And I was really struck by this because when I looked into it, I found out just the really minuscule number of African-Americans and women and, uh, you know, all kinds of diversity in clinical trials was severely lacking. And she also had this cultural upbringing by her father who had a serious mistrust in the healthcare system because of the things that had happened historically to people of color in clinical trials. And so she, you know, so she she not only didn't trust them, but then they were just proving that distrust by not having people that looked like her in clinical trials. And that was a big hurdle for her to overcome because she just didn't know um She didn't know how to make herself better, but at the same time, the healthcare system wasn't working for her. I was thinking about our experience recently. We've been trying to apply for New York, uh, the city of New York, to be a minority women-owned business. As we're applying for this, you know, they ask for all this crazy documentation, and we've done it for the women one. That's pretty easy for us to prove. I don't know if I'm a woman. (laughs) Yeah, actually, that's in question. Mm -hmm. For for the minority one, I was just like struck how difficult it was for us to be able to prove that we're minorities. Yeah. Like they wanted a birth certificate or death certificate. I'm telling you, it's a birther movement for minorities. It's so crazy. But then. Which was ridiculous because our birth certificate doesn't have our race or uh, ethnic origin on it. Yeah. I think it's really hilarious because you know I grew up in North Carolina at a time where being not white or not black was not cool right and for probably the first I don't know 13 14 years of my life worked really hard at trying to blend in right it's real hard to blend in when you look (laughs) pretty Asian yeah (laughs) and um and now I'm like trying to stand up and be you know and prove that I am it's like <laughs> look all I had to do irony. was yeah is just sit there when I was in class but now I have to prove that I'm actually Asian yeah the thing is is that you need the stamp <laughs> you need the system in order right to you need say, the program like, provide some legitimacy for this you know women minority business owners whatever right program I um, know it made me a little bit like are they afraid that people are going to take advantage of that and say that they're minority or women when they're not? Sure. I think it gets really cloudy, right, when you're an eighth 
I don't know, Eskimo, right? But the rest of your family is British, right? I don't know, Austrian, whatever. I think that there's some residual panic from affirmative action that has entered into our systems in the world where I just think it's kind of ridiculous. At some point, we're going to have to define, you know, who we are. Well, it's going to be real blurry, It's going to be very difficult to prove it. Yeah, because there's so many mixed kids running around. Yeah. Well, hopefully one day we... mixed kids. (laughs) Hopefully one day we won't need these systems because we will have addressed the fact that there aren't just 5% people of color in your study. That's right. So the, the the next issue is going to be just between whether or not you're pure blood or muggles. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was from Harry Potter. We'll start. We'll go back again. Whoa. What are some of the the key things that have caught your eye in terms of? of healthcare and inclusion. I wanted to first just define a health disparity, which is the common term that's used in healthcare, is just around a particular type of health difference that's closely linked to social, economic, or environmental disadvantage. So a health disparity can be a difference in anything from literacy to clinical trial to access to anything within health that you know really demonstrates that a particular population is not being served at the same level as others. Yeah. There was a report that was made by the uh, New York State Department of Health, and it was called Moving Toward Health Equity in New York. And they just had some interesting things around, um, like, for example, African-American and Hispanic New Yorkers die prematurely at rates nearly twice of white New Yorkers. And Asian-American New Yorkers have premature mortality of over 50% higher than those of uh, white New Yorkers. So just in New York, we're dying. People of color are dying quicker. Yeah. And, you know, compound that with economic disparities, like the fact that when you earn less than $15,000 a year, 40% of people reported having fair or poor health. But then when you earned over $75,000 a year, fewer than 5% reported fair or poor health. So that's the line. You got to make at least 75k in <laughs> order to not be screwed. fair or poor health, uh, which is a lot of a lot of freaking money. And then you're going to die. Yeah. And then Wow, you got real, real, real dark right there. <laughs> um, and then that nearly 60% of New York City, the zip codes have an inadequate supply of primary care physicians who are willing to see Medicaid patients. And Medicaid is the government assistance program for people who don't make enough money to pay right. for health care so because it's friggin' expensive. So there's not even enough doctors. Yeah. To address these populations. No, there's enough doctors. It's just that the doctors are not incentivized to see the patients that they need to actually see. That's what they're saying, that the doctors are not seeing Medicaid patients, probably because the government has not set up a situation where they can make enough money to um, see the Medicaid patients. Also, being a doctor is also really overinflated, right? A lot of people who become doctors have this association that you'll have a lot of money, uh, but you really got to work the system to make a lot of money, too. And part of that is, well, 
if I don't see Medicaid patients because I make more money on non-Medicaid patients than they, they don't see them. And that's the real problem. And then they die. It's a problem. It's like, you know, we're it's all, just, we're all I think the, die. the more research we've done, the more, you know, if you think about it as a scale, it's like, wow, it's really screwed up. Yeah. So I was wondering why, why is this important to you? Personally? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I'm mad about it. And you're not going to take it anymore? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was thinking, like, why does this make me so mad? I mean, aside from being a woman and being Asian and, you know, everything. Wait, you're Asian? I know, and a woman. So my background is, uh, it's a story about my mom. Um, my mom was born in the U.S. Her parents were from Japan, and they came over turn of century. And then during World War II, my both my parents' families were interned uh, during the Japanese-American internment. So that meant that their families um, were taken from their homes. All their property was sold because of the fear that people of Japanese descent couldn't be on the coasts because we were at war with Japan during World War II. So their families were moved and provided with temporary housing, which sounds very, very familiar these days when we think about some of the immigration issues we've had recently. And so families were displaced. And the story that I always think about with my mom is my mom has been, she's very critical of Western medicine and at the same time a little bit obsessed with health. Um, Your mom is a strong advocate for certain kinds of healthcare, kind yeah. of incredibly. Yeah. Your she's, mom knows how to use the internet. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. She, she is, reads a lot. She is a, probably a self-advocate oh my gosh. type of patient, right? Like she, she always gets a second opinion. She's also like very, very like health conscious. She knows what's going on in her body. She knows what's going on in my body. She knows what's <laughs> going on in my dad's body. She's kind of the keeper of our family's health. But I realize, you know, part of my mom's issue is that she was born in the internment camps and her mother died of a basically died of blood poisoning from a tooth and i think that that is her really own her own tooth yeah that's what <laughs> she didn't eat somebody else's no tooth. Uh, but she didn't have good care yeah. basically yeah and i think that it's always a completely preventable death basically. a preventable death and that in our family has become you know just like the, the lupus story a, a defining factor in how we feel about the industrial healthcare system, mm-hmm. that it fails people that they don't believe should have healthcare coverage. And for me, it just goes back to just an injustice and, and a inequality that I feel like has, has existed for a long time in our healthcare system yeah. and needs to be addressed. Yeah, makes sense. What about you? Oh, I think mine's pretty simple. I, my mom has had cancer twice. And I think just coming that close to and, and seeing her so ill, I think that I, I think I have an inherent fear that she'll get sick again. 
and she's she's older now and you know all those kinds of things and who knows what's going to happen and i think that i have a fear that she will have some sort of situation where you know traditional medicines might not work or or whatever and i think i have a fear that she might not have access to something new or something experimental or something that you know we have to go digging through crazy you know websites and books to try to find right and just because she doesn't necessarily live near an academic center i think that for me i just feel like that access is it's unfair But there is hope. There is hope. There's yeah. a lot of people. Hope? There's a lot of people doing really great things in this space, and we've um, lucky enough to have met and be working with a few of them. Yeah. One of them is Patient Revolution. They've got a really great history and background around enabling people to make better decisions. Can I read this passage? Please. It's so inspiring. The book is called Why We Revolt, and it's by Victor Montori, and it's from The Patient Revolution. This says, we must transform healthcare from an industrial activity into a deeply human one, capable of providing careful and kind care for all. The difference between what is and what should be provides voltage to a revolution. This is why we revolt. Oh, I love a revolution. Yeah, your punk rock comes out. <laughs> I'm fired up. Yeah, you sound fired up. <laughs> um, no, I think it's really good. And so Patient Revolution's doing some great work in this space. And also we've been working with a, a doctor, Shivani Agrawal, and she's doing some really great work in type 1 diabetes, especially with in pediatric type 1 diabetes, looking at health disparities and the social determinants of health, which we know create such a big impact. And those social determinants of health are things like homelessness or poverty or cultural backgrounds and things like that. Those are, are all things that are social determinants of health, and they impact your health care very much. I mean, what is great is that these groups are doing something about it. The stats are there that there's a problem. Yeah, it's huge. We met a woman named Khadija Ferryman, who's at Data and Society. She's a medical anthropologist doing research on uh, healthcare systems and the biases inherent in things such as precision medicine, personalized medicine. So, you know, what happens when we start to target treatments and solutions based on the human genome and you know what your genetic makeup is so she's done some writing on that and clinical trials as well as she's doing research on the electronic medical record and uh, it just struck her that there's a lot of decisions that have been made of what to include and what to flag in EMRs um, and who's made those decisions you know were they made by a software engineer were they made by somebody who actually worked with users yeah she's great I think that our takeaway for this is what can designers do in this space to help make sure that the right diversity of people are included in not just clinical trials but just being a part of that conversation in healthcare overall we're, you know, really looking to, through our teaching and through our lectures and things like that, you know, encourage people to be a part of this, especially designers in this, because 
I think historically it's been made by groups of people that are all within the same industry, whether or not that's doctors and nurses or it's, you know, marketers and scientists in pharma companies or it's academics, you know, that are doing this. But really what we've said all along, which is health is a cross-disciplinary endeavor. And we want designers to be a part of these conversations a lot more. And we're trying our best to to be a part of that, but we want to encourage people to get involved in these um, in these endeavors because it's really important that we make healthcare equal. It's a right that everyone deserves to have. And I think that designers can help to bring empathy and some problem solving and some understanding and, and methods of working together with populations to help determine what are the best kind of ways to overcome some of these obstacles. And that's key, right? It's the designer skill in bringing in the end user into the design of these systems. We can't do it by ourselves. It's not enough to just go and do research with end users. That's a great start, but it really is about allowing people to co-design. It's about having diversity on your teams, your design teams. It's about looking for different opportunities to make sure that we're having the equal representation, equal voice, bringing the patient voice to the table, making sure that patient voice is, you know, inclusive and diverse as well. So that's really our call to action. And it is just the beginning. I mean, there's so much that I think we want to say, but we have very little time. So we will continue this. Maybe we'll do a whole season on inclusion next year. Yeah, that could be a good idea. This is the last episode of the third season of Yeah, No. Thank you so much to Figure Eight Studios, Michael P. Coleman, Lily Wen, Shazad Ismaili for letting us do our podcast here every morning in the early morning. Thank God those musicians don't wake up before 10 a.m. Thank you to our team at Diagram, who also moonlights on the side as the Yeah, No podcast team. Tori Flack and Timo Ho for producing this thing and making us sound so good. And also, thanks to our summer intern, Sadia, for helping us with this research. Also, Catherine Raywinkle. Aw, Catherine. Thank you so much for contributing the ideas and the production and pulling off all this website and streaming stuff that I don't understand. And big cheers to Chess Smith for coming up with a new batch of music for us every season. Yeah, when we're in season 47, he's really going to be having <laughs> a hard time coming up with stuff. He's going to be playing like kazoos and duck calls. Yeah, we're going to have a soundtrack for you know coming soon we'll let you guys know special thanks to our season three guests yep siri that's who is amazing and lalita abiankar who is excellent and sarah hendren who is fantastic most of all thanks to our listeners for sticking by us and spreading the word yep we have a great group of people working on this and we continue to try to make this an amazingly interesting podcast for everyone So if there's something specific that you guys would like to hear, subscribe to us and write reviews for us. It's the only way we're going to know if we're talking about the things that you're interested in. And thank you, Mia Osaki. (laughs) Oh, and thank you, Tina Park, the best co-host ever. I know, I am. (laughs) This is the end of your innocence. Dun-dun, 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 dun-dun. Dun 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 dun.